Hey guys, this is John and Austin, and this is another episode of the Meat Justics podcast. All right, so we've got Curtis with us here. Curtis <laughs> is the author of Alligator Wrestling in the Cancer Ward. This was a really good book. I, I know I told you, I actually sent you a message. I don't know if you saw it through uh, Ring Central as soon as I finished reading it, saying how well I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see a response, so I figured you didn't see it. So first thing I did when I got back on Tuesday was walk in, find you, and be like, that it's, was really It's well technology, done. John, and you know, it, it, it thwarts a lot of us sometimes, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a computer thing. <laughs> so, uh, Kurt, we uh, initially knew Curtis through uh, a firewood business that he purchased, and he was our firewood delivery guy and the owner. Um, we started developing a relationship with Curtis. Uh, obviously, that went fairly well because he became our commercial salesman for northeast states. I don't remember exactly right. which ones, but for the Pennsyl single, Pennsylvania and New England. There you right. go. I mean, those yeah. are New England's a big area. So big area. Yeah, um, and. To no one's surprise, I'm sure, who knows you, uh, you very quickly became well-liked around here. Uh, we decided to keep you around. It's just uh, an act. It's just an act. But it's worked so far. Occasionally, so I see through it. Everyone's wrong. I'm like, there's the evil. I knew it was in there. Um, but we'll get into more of what this book's about in a minute. But basically, I mean, you raised two great kids. You had, from what seems like, that reading this book, seems like a great life. Everything's going well. And then obviously this book wouldn't be here without what happens. <laughs> Give us real the, broad strokes. Then the wheels fell off the wagon sort of one afternoon. So in, in June last year, June of 2022, uh, I had a routine uh, annual physical with my medical doctor, with my primary care physician. Uh, and sometimes I blow that off because I'm a picture of health and vitality and, and who needs to do the annual thing. And it takes some time, right? And then I got to come in late to work and then hide the fact that I'm late. So, so I did the annual physical with him that morning uh, and uh, the nurse called about uh, you know I did that at eight o'clock in the morning and the nurse called about 10 30 or 11 o'clock that morning she said uh, we'd like for you to repeat the blood test we did because they had drawn blood that morning uh, which was kind of an interesting development but she said we'd like to repeat that blood test because your uh, platelets are should be at 150 and they are at four uh, and and me, I'm in the middle of doing email and responding to various emergencies and this kind of thing. And I said, for what? She said, don't worry. It's technical. It's just a number. Uh, so please just go to an emergency room and have the blood test repeated uh, as soon as possible, like right now, if you could, because it's it's an important thing. OK, fine. So I did. I went to the medical center in Andover uh, because it's close to home. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be my lunch hour. And I already came to work late this morning. And so if I take if I take the lunch hour that goes too long, I'll have to take some vacation time just because it would be the moral thing to do. And I really don't want to do that because uh, I've only got a month of vacation time available and I want to hoard those days. So I went out there and had the blood test. And within about, I don't know, 30 minutes, uh, they had me they had me laying in a bed with an IV drip that was started. There's a lot of activity in the room. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I didn't feel particularly good. I was a little run down and fatigued, but I'm a tough guy. So who really cares whether I'm fatigued or not? Um, and then the doctor came in and started to explain the difference between lymphoma and leukemia. And I said, could we back up just for a moment, please? Because we're talking about these L words that I don't even think I can spell. Why are we talking about the L words? And he said, well, because you have low red blood cells and you have low platelets and you have low white blood cells. 
I said, so what does that mean? And he says, that means you have a leukemia. Um, pregnant pause ensued. Uh, and, and, you know, I've get, I'm trying to get my head around that thinking leukemia. I think that's like cancer, but I, I, I sell firewood and meat processing equipment. So I, I really have no idea. <laughs> so, so that sounds serious. I said, is that a diagnosis? And he said, of course not. We're an ER. We're not qualified to make that diagnosis. But when reds are low and whites are low and platelets are low, that's leukemia. So there it was. Uh, and they transported me later that night uh, in an ambulance to uh, St. Francis Regional Medical Center. They had to hustle to try to find a bed for me because all the beds were full. Uh, there for a couple of hours that afternoon, they thought maybe I'd be going to Kansas City to KU Med instead of to Wichita to St. Francis. Um, but they found a, a room at St. Francis. So I was able to transport there that night. So as I say in the book, so I'm left in, in, a, in an unfamiliar institutional room in a bed with with my cell phone and no charger and spotty Wi-Fi. And I'm trying to figure out how do you spell leukemia exactly so I can look this up and see what's going on. So that was how that saga started. And I did not go home for the next 83 nights in a row. So you were worried about your lunch break and it turned into 83 days. It did. It did. And 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 Walton's has been very gracious. Uh, you know, they they allowed me to take 30 days of vacation time right at the beginning of that. So that was good there for a while. <laughs> it was OK. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into it more. But it wasn't just leukemia. There there were some other things that popped up. The leukemia was actually the easy part. And, and what I discovered is that leukemia by itself probably won't kill you. Uh, it's all the bad actors that lets into the system that will do the damage. So the leukemia and basically that means that they that you have no immune system because the white blood cells are not working. And in my particular case, John, the, the leukemia was, I had this unusual, fairly rare variant um, called FLT3, FLT3. I don't know what that stands for, um, but it is a genetically mutated white blood cell. And they, they're like the adolescent who stays at home and never moves out. They, they never grow up. They never become productive. They just take up a lot of resources, a lot of space, and they crowd out what everybody else is trying to do that's productive. Sounds like teenagers that I've known. Uh, but but uh, it's the FLT3 variant, and it's, it's quite aggressive. This thing moved very fast. Uh, it's very aggressive. It's very quick. And it allowed other agents to, to come into my system, which were, which were very bad. Can you talk about, we're off of this. I, like I know. How this is, okay. I know. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you, you talk about in the book, looking back, how you think you could have spotted it a little bit earlier? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, I think I could have identified this if I had known anything about it. I could have identified this at least two weeks and probably two months earlier than than the doctor spotted this. Um, I had uh, I had unique bruising, very large. This is unusual, very large rectangular purple bruising in my lower extremities, the legs. Now I do a lot of work outside, and I bang myself around some, so that's not unusual. Um, these things are. Are, are about half the size of a three by five card. They're rectangular, they're purple, and they don't go away. And I figure, well, we got some farmland. I've been to the farm and I got bit by some exotic chigger or something like that. Uh, this being June. Okay. They'll go away after a while. They didn't go away. Uh, I also had some swelling from another bacterial infection that comes around periodically. I'm used to the swelling going up and then it goes down after a couple of weeks. It didn't go away. Uh, after 10 days, I still have swelling. So I think what's, what's up with that? There's something unusual about mm -hmm. that. Uh, and then, and then the big thing was the weekend before I saw that doctor for the annual PCP, 
GP visit, the wellness visit. Uh, I was working at my firewood lot. It was a hot day, one of the hot, humid days last summer. Um, and after I'd done not very much strenuous work and I was in the shade and there was breeze, I found myself sitting in my shed on a bucket with a fan blowing on me and I'm sweating like a horse. And I'm thinking, this is not normal. I'm out of breath. I'm fatigued. I really feel like I should go home and go to bed. And of course, for a guy of my age and with my history, the immediate thing that comes to mind is I've got a blocked artery. Right. Right. I've got I've got some kind of heart trouble. And then like most of us, I'm thinking, can I get through this load of firewood before I go take care of that? <laughs> you have a normalcy bias. Nothing bad is happening to me. It's Nothing never happened to me. So hurt. why should this? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So why should this? So. So, yeah, that, the, the shortness of breath is low red blood cells because they carry oxygen through the body. Uh, the purple bruising is low platelets because they they coalesce the blood and they make things like that go away. Um, the uh, the white blood cells, the infection, uh, the, the swelling that stayed high, that's low white blood cells because they fight that infection. So those three aligned. And if I had understood what I was looking at, I would have known there was a more serious problem than what I had anticipated. Can't be held responsible for that. I mean, who... Have you ever heard the uh, saying, when you hear hooves, you think horses? <laughs> don't, not... don't think of zebras. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, when you hear the sound of horses' hooves, yeah. Yeah, so I so I figured, well, it's the first really hot, humid day, and and I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I'm not 25 years old, so maybe it's probably okay. And besides that, I'm going to see the doctor in a few days. I guess I'll go ahead and keep the appointment. Um, <laughs> probably a good idea. So I, so I could talk to him about that. And, you know, he didn't think much. Actually, in that appointment, it was kind of interesting, John. I get in there and and uh, the nurse extracts blood for the for the blood test. Uh, and in a few minutes, the gauze pad that she had put around the arm, it's soaked bright red. Blood's running down my arm, getting on my Walton's logoed shirt. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, boy, am I going to be in trouble for that? I hope that blood comes out. <laughs> um, and so I take it out to the, to, the, to the nurse in the waiting room and I show her this. You know, other patients look up in alarm. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let that nurse at me. <laughs> the axe murderer has gotten to his arm. <laughs> so she whisked me out of sight and, and she wrapped up the arm and said, boy, that looks really bad, doesn't it? And she wrapped it up and sent me on my way. <laughs> oh, you would think a nurse, I mean, excessive bleeding is... I, I think that's not her deal. She draws blood and man. she bandages it up and that's her that's her thing. And, and and they've already done the blood test, so we'll get results. And we did get results. Alright, so we'll get into all the... the gory isn't the right word, all the scary details. Juicy, yeah. Uh, a couple of things. One, reading this book, the person that I most often felt for was not you. Yeah, right. It was your wife. Of course. There were numerous times it was like trying to imagine getting that phone call or right. having to communicate some of the things that she did to people, right. um, specifically with the, the heart issue that comes on later. Right. And I was just like, oh, that's real, <laughs> real adult things. I don't want but, those things. But, you know, she takes things like that in stride very well. When I had the uh, the cardioversion, uh, which is the electric shock to the heart, because okay. I was in a condition of arrhythmia. Uh, lub dub, lub dub, but lub dub, lub dub, but okay, so it goes on like that. And so the pulse rate was identified as something like 135, which is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's not really true. The machine was just trying to understand what was going on with that. So that's arrhythmia. Uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, cardi uh, fibrillation. Yeah, cardi. Okay, so I'm not a medico. So uh, what's that brought on by? It's brought on by all those drugs in the system. So they all have these interactions 
that they do, which are unpredictable, and everybody reacts differently to different kinds of medication. So there's the arrhythmia. So they're going to take me down, and you know, the, the doctor explains there's four or five different ways we're going to treat this, and he went through all of them in about three days, and nothing worked. He said, okay, now we're going to do the cardio version. I said, that's the one that you said you didn't want to use because it's unreliable, <laughs> and, and it's kind of scary. He says, he says we've determined that's the best treatment available uh, at the time, which means it's the only one left to us. <laughs> so we, so I, they haul me in the cart and we go down and I get ready for this thing. And, and I didn't know this. Lynn is in the, um, the family waiting room with my brother and his wife who'd come by just to not miss the fireworks. And, and, uh, Lynn says to the doctor who is very nervous, by the way, this guy's from, uh, he's from Syria. Uh, he is a naturalized U.S. citizen now. He was working on it at the time. He's been here for 10 years. Very competent guy, very friendly, very outgoing, but, but he was, very nervous about doing this. So um, to put him at ease, Lynn says to him, I just have one question for you. He says, what's that? And he says, can I be the one to push the button? <laughs> After he's gone through all this, all the risks of this and the risk of stroke and the risk of death. <laughs> Which is clear, clearly he doesn't want to do this. This is like he doesn't the, want to do it at all. Last <laughs> this is the resort. last thing on, yep. the, on the list. Yep. Right. Nothing else has worked with this fellow. So this may be the end of everything here. So she asked that question and, and he turns to him and says, I'm going to tell him you said that. <laughs> but it, but my brother said, you know, it really put him at ease when she said that. So he just he jauntily walks into the room and <laughs> well there are tons of times in here that you use humor to put the doctors it seems like the nurses maybe didn't need it yeah. as much but yeah. to put the doctors at ease yeah um and we'll get to it at the end but there's some stuff at the end of the book some lessons that uh -huh. i think are yeah really really important some of the lessons learned yeah. but the uh subtitle of this is how a christian tough guy survived leukemia with gallows humor one-liners and a praying posse which patrick <laughs> will probably laugh i called it uh when i say a pose <laughs> <laughs> i turned a few shades red on that but if we go back to just real quick uh, early life a little bit so yeah, you grew up on sure. a farm i did doing a lot of you know farm boy farmish kinds of things mm -hmm. yeah uh, yeah you seem to think you weren't quite cut out for it. I, I was not. I was I was much more interested in reading and doing sedentary things um, in the air conditioning uh, <laughs> than, I, than I was real work, although I did my share of real work. But I might say the farm was a quarter section. And for those who don't really understand that, it's 160 acres. It's a quarter of a square mile. So we call it a quarter. Uh, in 1905, when my grandfather first thought about purchasing that land, uh, you could support a family of four on a land that size. By 1960, there's no way right. uh, because corporate farming had started and you couldn't you couldn't make a living doing that. So so compared to the other kids in my class in in my high school class in a rural setting, they lived on real farms. They had a couple of sections and they're running horses and they're running tractors with multi bottom plows and they're running cattle. Uh, they're doing lots of things. Uh, me, I'm running the lawnmower around the barn. Um, I'll, I'll use the tractor in the field when I have to, but the field's not that big. Uh, and dad would probably prefer to run the tractor himself okay. instead, of, <laughs> instead of me do it. So I really didn't have the street cred that I thought I needed. Okay. That, that explains something a little bit yeah. because after college, you said you intentionally went and worked a blue collar job for a I while because you felt like you needed the bona fides. I did. I was going to say growing up as a farm kid kind of gives you that. 
It's just it's just a scale of reference. Uh, in, in reference to the city kids, I probably had the cred. Uh, in reference to the other farm kids, they just say, hey, "Yeah, we've seen your farm." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we do that in an afternoon. Yeah, right. and I and I knew that. And and by the way, I, and this plays into it. Some I had an eye injury when I was about nine years old, which left me virtually blind in my left eye. I had no peripheral vision, so there were a lot of things that that my mom did not want me to engage in because at that age and in that era, you don't know what the technology is, and there's always a concern of retinal peeling or mm. something like that. So, don't be too strenuous. That's fair. Uh, yeah. So you get into debate. I did. I How did. much do you think that shaped your current <laughs> personality? Because for those of you who don't know, yeah. who've never spoken to talk to Kurt, uh, he is a very good talker and he clearly relishes it. <laughs> Some of us said that's the only thing I do well is speak. <laughs> I have no idea where they get that, where that impression. Seems odd. Yeah, seems odd, doesn't it? Non sequitur. I've been uh, speaking in public since I was in sixth grade. I had a teacher in school who set me up with a, 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 a church women's group in somebody's living room one afternoon, and I did some memorized spiel in front of him. And of course, you got a sixth grade boy and all those women, and so you're the, the darling and the star of the show, and it's a brief taste of glory, you know, for the, for the kid. But I, so I sort of got a taste for it then. And John, I don't know that that the debate experience in high school, and I debated three years out of four, uh, not my sophomore year, but the others. Uh, I'm no, I don't know that that shaped my personality, but I think that experience did help guide my development in terms of interpersonal communications and relationships. So I so I recognized then. Um, that that aphorism my mother used to say, stand up, speak up and shut up, uh, say what you have to say and make it well organized and, and present it and then stop there. That was well done right there. All right. Moving on to college, uh -huh. uh, your freshman year, somebody living on your floor uh, introduces you to the gospel. Th he did. That's that right. That is not the way a lot of college kids, especially today, go. He's supposed to introduce me to something long and skinny and smoky. That's right. Usually, yeah. Right. <laughs> so you went the other way. I did. Um, and kind of set you on this, because you were already a Christian of, of some sort. I would have said so, and I did say so at the time. Uh, in, a, in a technical sense of understanding evangelical Christianity, I don't think so. I don't think I'd ever actually responded to the message of the gospel. Uh, I thought I had. Um, although I could not have passed even a multiple choice test about what that was about. So when he explained this to me and then took me to a couple of meetings and I, and I was exposed to this in, in a clear sort of left brain, concrete, sequential sort of learning environment to understand this is what the book says, the New Testament. Uh, and where, where, do you, where are you on this, on this list of things that it, that it says? Uh, I had to admit, I, I really have never been into this before. I really don't know. I've just just kind of had this amorphous sort of oozy feeling that if I go to church a lot and hang out with nice people, then I can be a Christian, uh, which is actually not at all the message of the New Testament when one digs into it. But it's a nice feeling while sure. it lasts. Yeah. Yeah. So I responded to that message then. Uh, you know, responding to the gospel message is not a matter of one's will or or intentionality even. I think I think. Personally, I think it's a matter of, of a spiritual thing that happens as, as the Holy Spirit draws a person uh, into that relationship with God. So, so I responded to that. Uh, it's, it's not of me. It's not of anything that, that I've done. It's not from being a good moral farm kid. Um, it, it's, it's just the drawing of God, and it's, it's a spiritual event that occurs. Well, it clearly is extremely important to you. I mean, it is the first adjective you use to describe yourself. I put that in the subtitle because I wanted to telegraph uh, 
to, to potential buyers that they're getting a book that has a Christian theme to it. Sure. I didn't I didn't want to do a bait and switch because the title alligator wrestling. I mean, it's a very manly sort of thing. And it's and it's and it's uh, humorous in the, from the standpoint that <laughs> right. Alligator wrestling in the hospital. Sure. Got it. Right. And so it it's a swaggering kind of thing. And that was that was the point of the title was to make it humorous. And I also wanted a graphic that would pop off the page in a thumbnail because that's how people buy books. We always judge books by their covers. We do. We <laughs> definitely do. And it is good. Who did the artwork? Uh, there's a, a guy named uh, Casey. C.S. Fritz is his trade name. He's in uh, Boston. I found him on a site called Upwork.com. Okay. Uh, I read several resumes and I picked him out. He's actually the most expensive one I found. But I but I picked him out because he had done work uh, for some publishers that I knew of in, in a Christian arena. He had done, uh, he had done uh, I think, drawings for C.S. Lewis books, oh. uh, for some Tolkien books. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, not for C.S. Lewis because right, he's but gone, for the but, yeah, but for yeah, that yeah. material. So he had done some things like that, um, and and uh, I never actually have talked to him on the telephone. We've just communicated by the interface, by the chat interface on his on his site. I mean, when you're talking fiction authors in Christianity, those are the those two, are the ones you look to, really? right? <laughs> those are the two big ones. Those are the ones. Yeah. Okay. Right. If we uh, move on to professional life, one of the stories that really uh, <laughs> stuck with me was. You were, you never mentioned the company by name. Right. Is that, yeah. is there a it's, reason? It's, there's no legal constraint. Okay. With so that. Southwestern Bell. Southwestern Bell. You were working for them. Right. There were three people in all of Kansas who had your uh, specific job. They were looking to make that too. You took a sideways move so both of them could keep their jobs. I did. I was quite the guy. I and was, then they were out. And then they retired. Shortly, shortly right. after. I, yeah. I, Landing you in Wichita. Now you, were you already in Wichita? I was in, Wichita, in Wichita, Wichita, right. Landing you a new job in Wichita, having uh, a specialized department report directly to you. 120 okay. people, 120 people. I had had, what, 15 before that. That's so I went to difference. 120 people. That's right. a big difference. Yeah. Uh, then word comes down that this is being absorbed somewhere else. The, the 25 of them were service representatives. So they're telephone representatives and they take incoming calls from from very high profile business customers across Kansas um, on specific range of equipment. But these service representatives, they all had at least 20 years of service with the company. They're very highly trained. They're very competent. Uh, you would love to have any one of them for a next door neighbor. Um, and they were going to be surplused, which in our lingo at the time meant meant fired. Uh, it's not a layoff. There's no calling them back. It's your your time is at an end. Thank you for your service. You're gone. Well, these people are all 20 years of service. Most of them are second wage earners. They're it's a predominantly, in fact, in that case, 100 percent female audience okay. that we're dealing with. Uh, they make good money. They have good benefits. In many cases, the primary wage earner in their family does not have insurance benefits or all those things that the major corporation can provide. It would be extraordinarily disruptive to those people. And where will they go to find something comparable at that rate of pay? Uh, I was their unit manager. It wasn't my idea uh, to get rid of them. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here just 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 managing the administrative day to day stuff. And the memo comes across and says, by the way, we're going to surplus your group here in three weeks and they'll be out of a job. So you just handle that for us. Uh, <laughs> whose idea was this? Right. <laughs> so I felt it incumbent upon me. Let's try to let's try to create something for them that's going to keep these people employed, uh, because the company's better off and they're better off and everybody's better off if we can keep that resource engaged. Yep. So 
What do we do? We so, find- so I, I, I just, you know, one thing about working for the telephone company back in those days, this is 1998 or 99 or something. You have free long distance from, from, it's not measured, right? From a company facility, you can call anybody you want. <laughs> so, and I had, and I, I had, uh, what, 25 years of service at that point or so. So I started calling people that I knew. Uh, all over the company looking for work from my service representatives. You know, I've got this group. What do I need? And I stumbled across this outfit in Houston that <laughs> we called it the billing complaint desk. No, it's the billing inquiry center handling business accounts where when a, when a customer can't pay the bill, doesn't pay the bill, some problem with the bill, they have to have somebody they can talk to. Uh, and it's it's an inbound service. It's an 800 number service, but they can call and say, I got this problem with my bill. Well, it ends up being the complaint desk. Right. Right. That, that's what that is. And we need people who can handle that. Uh, it's a very difficult job to do as the as the service rep taking calls. One call after another is a problem involving money. Uh, there's nothing fun about, oh, would you like Internet access? Would you like another fax line? Would you like another line for the employee's break room? Oh, no. It's, yeah, you've got an $18,000 outstanding bill and you're already three months past due. Yep. So what's your plan? Uh, that, that's what that conversation is like. So. Well, I, I don't know what the previous job was. It sounds like it wouldn't have been that bad. It but was not, nothing is that bad. <laughs> that does show um, that if you can be willing to do the work that nobody else wants to do, right. there will always be a place for I, I include like that. I concluded that early on, handling the emergency communications public safety sector. Yep. Uh, back in 1984-85, uh, after company shakeup and reorg, I was basically one of the last people standing in our department, and we had this crisis project with a customer to deliver a 911 system that was functional, that was brand new, and nobody in the nation had ever done it before. We had made a we had made a commitment to the customer that we're going to have this operational at a certain time frame. When in fact the manufacturer that supported this says it'll take at least twice that long. Mm-hmm. We promised a 14 month interval and would take probably 28 to 30 months to get it done. So I walk into the thing about nine or 10 months before the deadline and discover there's nothing that's even started on it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so with that as a background, and we, we got it done, but with that as a background, I thought, you know, if you're willing to take on these really gnarly jobs that everybody else is scared to death of, then probably there's always be a place for you here. <laughs> it's a good, good thing to remember. Yeah. All right, let's jump back into the, okay. the gory details or the uh, I like the juicy details. part. Yeah. The juicy yeah. details. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How did your wife not just totally fall apart? Uh, she's made of fairly stern stuff um, is part of it. She's an old, she's an old Missouri hillbilly is what she is. Okay. <laughs> and she has she's said, okay with you saying that. And obviously. she has said that before in public. So I'm okay with that. Um, but, but she's made of fairly stern stuff. Uh, so when, when I first uh, broke this to her, I was in this emergency room at Andover and I thought I probably should tell her I'm at the ER just because it would only be the right thing to do. So I did said, don't worry about it. I'll be here for a while. And I'm going, back to work. She called me two hours later and said, you forgot to call me, didn't you? Back at work yet? And I said, well, not exactly. <laughs> and by the way, bring somebody to drive the pickup home because it's in the South parking lot. And I don't think I'm going to drive it home tonight or any future night for a while. So so how did she deal with that? Um, we, we, are, we are part of a, of, a, of a small church in Benton. Uh, and we're, we're very involved with that church and have been for the last 40 years, really, ever since we've been married. 
Uh, and, and there are lots of people around her who rendered a lot of assistance to her. So she had a good support network for that. Uh, she was at the hospital with me every day and she came in in the morning. And by the way, we spent a small fortune on carbohydrates for the nursing staff, which made the nurses quite happy to see her when we came to. There you go. When she came Gotta in. Got to bribe them. In fact, one of us said one morning, where, where is Lynn? She's not here yet. You know, I, I had I had to eat an apple for breakfast. Is she coming in sometime? <laughs> <laughs> so so she handled that very well, but it was very stressful for her. It was really worse for her than it was for me, as you have intuited. Um, it, it's always hard to be the one who's not directly affected. Who's watching. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I've got I've got a nursing staff. I've got fresh water. I've got good air conditioning. Uh, I've got meal service delivered. So what do I need? <laughs> a break. <laughs> a so, break, yeah. So we have leukemia. Okay. Okay. We also have an infection going on yeah. pretty much everywhere? Yeah, pretty much everywhere. There are multiple infections. Um, I, I think of this as, as VFB, virus, fungus, bacteria. Uh, you can get any of those things in a hospital. Uh, and I, I came in with an infection that I, that I brought in with me, which, which was a recurring thing that's been around for 15 years, left over from scar tissue from previous surgeries. So it's really not relevant to this other than it was one of the early alerts to me. Uh, when I was in the hospital uh, with the white blood cells, with that FLT3 variant, the white blood cells were not operating effectively, so they cannot protect me from getting disease. Hospital is the best place to go if you want to get sick. Yes. Right? Because it's all around. Yes. Uh, um, so the white blood cells were not working. And then we hit it with chemotherapy to kill the ones that were still there. Right. So we're actually going to destroy the white blood cells. And by the way, the numbers, the 150 that the nurse first told me that you have, that's actually 150,000. And the shorthand that the medicos use, they just dropped the last three zeros uh, from some of those measures. So okay. when they say you've got 150, that's a count. It means 150,000 white blood cells. And those are, those are the cowboys that ride the range looking for breaks in the fence line through your vascular system. And there are some of those white blood cells that that identify a problem, a broken fence line. And there are others that then converge on the location to fix the fence. Okay. So there's at least a couple of different kinds of white blood cells. And I don't know how many of each, but in total, there's about 150,000 riding herd on all of your vascular system. And the blood test that morning showed that I was down to 4,000. Okay. Four, that's, that's what the four is. Okay. And by the time Andover was done with me that after Afternoon, they had measured 2,000. So it, it was nosediving. I was yeah. going to zero. And so that means I was susceptible to anything at all that, that roams about. Okay. So we get transferred over uh, to the hospital. I'm sure that was a fun ambulance ride. Oh, it was fine. You know, the, the EMT was nice and competent and it was not her fight. She's here just to get me transported and make sure I'm still breathing when I get in there. Yeah, so that the part worked. <laughs> How early on did you start worrying about or thinking about this could be it? Well, uh, not until the next day. Okay. <laughs> uh, the doctor, and they gave me some stuff to read, some literature that's obligatory. And uh, one of the items in the brochure, and I discussed with the doctor, is that the, uh, the, uh, the chance of surviving this particular variation uh, for the next three months is something less than 25%. I thought, well, that's an interesting statistic. 
so what? I can't really control it and I don't really live my life by statistics. And then the next day, the oncologist who's extraordinarily competent, I have a lot of respect for him. He's a Lebanese guy. Uh, He came in and said, "Okay, so you've got this other collateral infection. We're going to put you on a regimen of antibiotics for two weeks to treat that. And then we're going to start chemotherapy um, for the for the uh, leukemia. Um, I said, that's the plan. He says, yeah, that's the plan. But but I actually want to talk to a couple of coordinates first, other doctors. I want to review the notes and see if I'm right about that. I'll be back. And I thought, well, that's fine. Well, two hours later, he came back and said, I have concluded that my first plan was was not appropriate. Uh, I wanted to put you on antibiotics for two weeks. You do not have two weeks. So there it was. Um, the lifespan goes from 20 years to 14 days here just at the in that cotton. Now, is that true? I don't know. He doesn't know, but he knows if we don't start chemotherapy right now, this isn't going to work. Yeah. So I asked him, are we still going to do the antibiotics? He said, oh, yeah. And he had the other, he had the infectious disease doctor with him at the time, a female. Uh, and she said, yeah, we're going to do the antibiotics also. We've got to do that because it's not going to respond well. I said, they're going to fight against each other, antibiotics and the chemo drug. And uh, the oncologist said, don't worry. The chemo drug is the schoolyard bully uh, and he will win that contest. But some of the antibiotics will survive. So there is a chance that they will be able to fight infections in your system. We'll just see how it works. You hear a lot of chances <laughs> in there. and I can, it's, it's more, I think it's, it's as much art as it is science because they don't really know sure. and actually the flip three they don't know that stuff at all uh that's that's only been uh identified by the by the food and drug administration since 2017 as a real thing flip threes it's not new but there's been no research on it so so the drugs that treat it are new there are no longitudinal studies that show what the what the likelihood of survival is from that uh, you don't even know how the body is going to respond to the to the oral meds that I'm, that I'm on now. Uh, so far, so good. But so, one doesn't know. So the goal of the chemo is basically to get your bone marrow to stop producing more of these faulty white blood cells. Uh, sort of. I okay. think I think the point is to kill the raft of and it's it's whites, reds, and platelets. Uh, it's all those things that it has produced. We're going to get it to quit producing those by killing them off, and then we are going to get out of the way and let the bone marrow start with a new crop. Okay. So the bone marrow does what it's going to do. Uh, and if that doesn't work, then the bone marrow is no good. And then we need a bone marrow transplant, which is a, a blood transfusion of the entire body. Not a good thing. Uh, no. And uh, actually, for somebody who is more seasoned as myself, uh, there is a fairly substantial risk of mortality, even with doing the transplant. Uh, so there's a, a good friend of mine who's on my Caring Bridge app. Uh, who just went, she's 40 years old. She just went through a bone marrow transplant, which was, which was very difficult for her to do. She was fatigued, tired, run down, sick, susceptible. Uh, it's, it's very wearing on the body. And, um, that was about a 30 or 40 day regimen she went through. Yeah. Uh, when I was in college, we had a local kid up in Massachusetts, uh, leukemia. I think he was six or eight, somewhere very, very yeah. young. Yeah. Every, almost every kid in that college went to get tested to see right. if they could. One kid could, the kid who donated or was the donor, um, it went so wrong for him. He dropped out. Really? Yeah. It, w- it went really, really bad. So that's not something. For, for the donor, you uh-huh. mean? That's not good. That's not <laughs> something to mess around with. <laughs> no. So. No. 
obviously good that you well and in talking with the oncologist he said really the the chemotherapy now we don't know how flit 3 responds but if it's anywhere close to the others the chemotherapy will push off leukemia for an uncertain period of time every round of leukemia which in my case lasts for about three weeks out of four he says it pushes it off we don't know if it pushes it off for for a month, a year, a decade, we don't know how long. But the more cycles uh, that we do iteratively, iteratively, where we kill off all the cells and then we let the bone marrow create new ones and then we kill that raft off and let the bone marrow create new ones and then we kill that raft off, right? A month at a time. Every cycle we do seems to work better. Okay. That is, it pushes leukemia off. And at the age of 69 now, if I can push that off by doing cycles of chemotherapy, I'd why not? Yeah. I'd much prefer to do that. And it, this is a, a different chemotherapy in the last what five, ten years than what they used to use. Oh yeah, it's and I don't, I, I don't have a frame of reference sure. for that. But what I've concluded is that everything I thought I knew about this is completely irrelevant. When I first went in there, John, I thought, you know. Uh, cancer is a killer. It will kill you. It's just that it takes a while to do it. And it's exceedingly uncomfortable between <laughs> between the diagnosis and the death. Well, that's not very appealing. Right. You no. know, can we just can we just get it over with? <laughs> I mean, if that's where we're going, I've, I've got the check marks done. Right. <laughs> if that's where we're going, let's get it done. But that's not how it works. One example of that is when they used to administer this uh, uh, this intravenous drug, which is the thing that looks like something from a nuclear test facility uh, has suits and all that stuff. Everybody but me is in a hazmat suit. Bright that says red. something, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the well, bright it's going red. into your veins. Yeah, one of the guys on Curing Bridge said, that looks exactly like the lithium grease I used in the ball joints of my 66 Chevy. Let's not forget <laughs> to talk about that. We'll talk about okay. Curing Bridge. So so um, what it used to happen was they would inject that into the, into the patient's vein, and it runs up the arm and gets to wherever it's supposed to go. And the skin surface over the vein turns bright red with a very bad sunburn. And the doctor said, sorry, that's just what the drug does imagine what it's doing inside your system we're just trying to keep you alive here so sorry about the sunburn we'll put some stuff on it um, and now they have techniques that protect that skin uh, from doing that with a with a pick line uh, right uh, yeah. goes yeah. actually through yeah the vein to protect a little, the vein from yeah there's the an inner tube a tube crazy. that goes inside it's yeah who thinks this stuff uh, up caring bridge you want to talk caring yeah, bridge go okay so caring bridge is caringbridge.org uh, is a facebook like website that's free to the user where a lot of people uh, who are who have some medical issue because it's medical oriented, uh, they can post daily updates to their condition and then people they know can log on to that site and see the daily update. So it keeps me from getting 50 texts a day uh, in a hospital bed, as I said in the book, and you probably read in there. Uh, How are you doing today, Curtis? Are you OK? And I want to say, yeah, I've got a life threatening disease and I may not last the summer. How are you doing? <laughs> but it keeps me from getting all those texts because right. there's something going on. All the time um, that, that we have to deal with in the hospital. Sure. Uh, so that's Caring Bridge, and it is a lifesaver because it uh, it allows us to deal with that uh, with those daily posts. And I determined early on I'm going to put out a post every day um, because I can, and I, I can use the words. You know, I, I can I, I can manage the words. And there are most days I didn't feel like it, but what I discovered, and this is where the posse part comes from in the in the uh, gallows humor, one-liners, and a praying posse, uh, 
I collected about 250 followers on the Caring Bridge app when I was there. And those people are praying. Now, most of them are from my church, but a lot of them are from other people, other places that I've worked and people mm -hmm. that I know. Um, but there's there's there are prayer warriors in their midst. And some of them, I don't know who they are, but there are people that are praying. And I discovered after about two weeks in there, I really have to have the prayers of the saints working for this thing or this isn't going to work at all. Well, let's talk about two specific ones where you feel like prayer was the the turning point. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, cleaning lady, yeah, the house cleaner, yeah, and you called. Yeah. You said it wasn't a, a normal, you know, <laughs> please heal me. You called her a warrior of God. <laughs> oh dear Jesus, we just thank you for this man, and we hope that you would know this. This was this was spiritual warfare. Spiritual uh, warfare in, in a hospital room. Uh, she's she's a very tall, imposing black lady who comes in uh, with her cleaning cart. I'm looking for Mr. Kurt. Are you Mr. Kurt? Well, yes, I would be the frail senior citizen in the bit. And what I had been struggling with was a mouth sore that had developed. Now, this is not uncommon with cancer patients, but I had a an owie on the side of my tongue about halfway back that made it almost impossible to swallow right. uh, without inordinate pain. I couldn't speak. My sheesh was slurred, you know, and for a guy, all I do is speak, you know, and for that, that's really unsettling that, sure. I, that I can't get through that. So so she came in and, and Lynn talked to her and ex explained what the situation was. And she said, Jesus, do not want you suffering from mouth sores. We're going to fix that. We're going to pray for the mouth sores right now. And she laid hands on me and she prayed for probably five minutes. Um, in an exhaust, a spiritually exhausting demonstration of faith. Uh, she believes in the God of the Bible, and she believes when you need something, you should ask for something. Um, and so she asked, and those mouth sores afflict a lot of people. Uh, and I know other cancer survivors who have had terrible mouth sores. Um, I would characterize mine as terrible. The way we were treating that, by the way, was oxycodone two hours before I eat, Tylenol an hour before I eat, lidocaine to swab the inside of the mouth and deaden everything about 10 minutes before I eat, and then I can swallow okay. some food occasionally. Lots. Um, that's how I was doing this. And, and Marva prayed, and the next morning, there's no mouth sore there. Uh, I can still feel it, and there's a little bit of pain and discomfort, and I still do the oxycodone and the Tylenol for a couple of days, and I finally told the nurse, we don't need the oxycodone. It'll be fine. And that mouth sore was gone. Um, it did not occur. It has not occurred since then. Uh, okay. Next three months, no more mouth sore. And how do the doctors... Good question. Uh, one of the chaplains that I know, um, who's, a, who's a former pastor, I asked him about how they deal with that. And he said they call that spontaneous remission. That is a quasi-medical term that many doctors use to be able to describe miraculous events like that. And it keeps them from, ha I respect that. It keeps them from having to deal with the gnarly issues of taking sides in that spiritual sure. debate, right? It's spontaneous remission. Can't explain it. It just happened. Happens sometimes. Most of the time it doesn't. So that's the deal. Um, but he said, you know, you have some white blood cells and they will actually heal things like that. And I said, yeah, but I came in here with it and it's a whole lot worse. And I got fewer white blood cells now than I did then. Right. Yeah. And he said, can't explain it. It's just the way it happens. That's how it goes. All right. A thing we haven't talked about at all was uh, this fungal <laughs> or yeah. fungus infection that was yeah. actually in your blood. It's bloodborne. It doesn't, it's not, a, it's called fusarium with an F, fusarium. It does not 
uh, act like any self-respecting athlete's foot. <laughs> um, this is bloodborne. And to to butcher uh, John chapter three, it's like the Holy Spirit. It goeth whither it will. <laughs> uh, it's in the blood and it can land any place, any time in your entire system. And one of these uh, points of attack was on the spleen. Now, the spleen is supposed to filter impurities from the blood. So it sort of makes sense that it winds up there. Uh, but it attacked the spleen. Um, and that's that was uh, that was a dicey thing. Uh, you want to get into that? Yeah, go. So so I'd been in for right at 30 days, which was the promised length of stay in the hospital. We're going to do chemo for a week, assess for three, send you home. We'll do the rest of the chemo outpatient. So at nine o'clock on a Sunday night. Um, I'm there. I'm ready to go home the next morning. Nine o'clock the next morning, I'm going to be discharged. Because you're seeing some positive right. improvements. Right. I mean, yeah, tests the, were coming back good. They had already done the biopsy. There's yep. no blasts, which are bad white blood cells, and there's no blasts present. So we're good to go. We can start the the, the maintenance, the, the the chemotherapy maintenance. Or the They call it uh, something else. Anyway, we can start the regular chemotherapy outpatient. So, so I'm in the hospital room that night. The nurse that I have is a nurse that I had met, Nurse K in the book. Uh, I had met her once when I was first admitted to the hospital 30 days before. She was very pregnant. That was her last day in before she delivered her baby. She comes back a month later. Now, this is her first night back from maternity leave. She's on the night shift. They gave, uh, and then another nurse does not show up for duty that night. Okay, so they have to redistribute some of the patient load among the other nurses. So me... I'm reasonably healthy. I won't need anything tonight. Nurse K, she's getting reacclimated. It's her first night back in, so they give me to her. She walks in my, on me at nine o'clock at night, and I'm curled up on the edge of the bed in, in, a, in a fetal position. She said, "What's wrong?" And I said, "I don't know, but there's something bad wrong." John, I, when I sat up, I sat on the edge of the bed to get in bed. All the stars of heaven. My wife rolls her eyes when I say this. <laughs> All the stars of heaven fell from the sky and they landed in my chest and they were all made of broken glass. They grated against each other. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't sit. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't roll over. I couldn't do anything. Grating, stabbing, incredibly sharp pains uh, in there. I learned later that's blood that is loose outside the vascular system and your brain cannot localize pain inside the abdomen. It doesn't know where the pain's coming from. And that's normal. That's the way the brain operates. So the, so the pain is coming from everywhere. Yeah. So everything from the, from the belt line to the shoulders are charged with gas and blood and I couldn't belch it out. I couldn't get rid of it. So that's what that was like when Nurse K showed up and said, so how you doing? I said, not good. Uh, <laughs> all right. So they come, they determine that something's wrong with you. We're going to have to get you into surgery, but she, hey, not right away. She and the uh, she called the charge nurse uh, who came in and and they while they were looking at me and assessing the blood pressure, the BP was only 80 over 40, which is low, it was supposed to be 120 over 60. BP is 80 over 40. My pulse is 60 or 70 or something. And while they are studying my case, the BP drops to 60 over 30. Now, Nurse K says later, she says, in the nurse squad room, we call that 60 over dead. Mm. Nobody comes back from 60 over 30. Uh, your pulse rate dropped from 60 to 30 by coincidence. So there's almost no pulse. There's no blood pressure. Uh, and she called for a rapid response. Uh, she pushed the panic button, which is on her phone. 
So, so immediately within 90 seconds, the room is filled with people, cardiac doctor, two cardiac nurses, every nurse from the cancer wing uh, comes onto the floor, EKG technicians, other people in scrubs. The pain is incredibly intense for me. Uh, and in a moment of levity, I point to the nurse with everybody looking at me. <laughs> this is her first night back. She's 24 years old. This is horrible. It is I point to bad. her and say, you did this to me. <laughs> and, and suddenly everybody turns to look at her. Very serious tone faced. I mean, there are doctors who make, I don't have much money. Doctors looking at her. What? So what did you do? What's the story? <laughs> she says, honest, I did nothing. They tell me he does this all the time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so she's still employed two months later, so it blew over. There you but go. I apologize to her all the same for that. Yeah, so yeah, they took me to surgery. This was a trip. Uh, to take me to surgery, put me on a transport cart. What is that like? Uh, from a hospital bed, you roll the patient to one side all the way up against the bed rail. You put a sheet down. You're rolling back on his bed and to the other side. You extend the sheet. You're rolling back and you drag the sheet from one cart to the other. Ba -bum, ba -bum. All while you have hot, broken glass. Cannot, cannot describe yeah. how how bad that was well, yeah yeah um you write about how you remember them screaming at you stay with me stay with me <laughs> yeah the count back from 10 yeah and for whatever reason you decided to start at four i'm gonna start at four <laughs> right i'm gonna take her just advice she's just a nurse what does she know <laughs> so what's even funnier is you went from four to one back to ten all the way back down to five <laughs> Yeah, so so she's screaming, and I don't know when this is in the wee hours of the morning. Lynn tells me it's probably two or three o'clock in the morning, and this nurse is in my face. Stay with me, stay with me, stay with me, and and I managed to say to her, I do not want to stay with you uh, because I. And this is that yep. that card, the, the little white index card, four inches square. This is a vision. It's not real. It's in my vision right in front of my face. And I can see this card and the edges are deteriorating like a TV channel with no signal. Uh, it's, it's turning to white snow around the perimeter of the card. I can't see the edges of the card. I just can't see the corners. But somehow that bottom right corner is very peaceful. I just need to slip off to that bottom right corner of the card, move my vision, go down there, and then I can rest and I can relax and the pain will stop if I go down there. But that nurse is in my face shouting at me, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me, Kurt. I don't want to stay with you. And there's somebody from the other side of me on my right side, Lynn, and she is hammering on me. She's slapping me. She's slapping my arms, my chest, my face. She's she's pushing on me. She's yelling at me something. And that that physical harassment from that side made me very angry. I was very impatient. I didn't know who it was. Why are you doing this to me? But somehow that pushed me back to the center of that card when she was shouting at me and this nurse who otherwise seemed to be a very reasonable human is 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 just apoplectic stay with me stay with me so they're trying to keep me from going unconscious mm -hmm. is what it is Lynn told me they lost me three times that night that I that I slipped into unconsciousness and they got me back by this frantic shake and shout. And that's what that ordeal was. And and in the middle of that, I say, OK, curse word, curse word. I will go back to the center of that card. There's no reason why I should and I don't want to. And there is an exorable and inexorable pull to the piece from the bottom right corner that seemed somehow to be very dangerous. 
it somehow seemed very wrong to go to the bottom right hand corner. I can't explain that. So was that an, a feeling you had initially that the no. bottom right hand? No, because initially no. it was peace. It, initially it was peace. So it was only once you determined. It's, it's. I didn't determine. I don't think I determined anything, but they were so insistent. And and it, it finally came over me. They're probably right. And probably there's something very, very bad in the bottom right hand corner. I don't know what it is, but it seems terrifyingly wrong to go there. Okay. So what is that? I have no idea. I will tell you. So this also happened earlier when they shocked your heart back into. <laughs> they did. You also yeah. talked about the, the index yeah. card. Yeah, there's a yeah little rectangle that hung in my vision from the electroshock. Uh, my father died on an operating table and came back and he described something very similar. Yeah. So there. I don't think it's uncommon. I, when I read that, I was. The the first time I read it, yeah, um, I was made you shudder, shocked. yeah, yeah, and then I read it again, yeah. and your description of fighting to get away from the bottom right corner was, I mean, everything in it's well done, but that will stick with me forever. Poignant, maybe a word to use here. Very yeah, good. It's poignant. See, yeah, your wordsmith. See there, see there. That's right. Yeah, lexicographical uh, ledger domain. Uh, so, so the one of the editors that I talked with about the book, he said you have to have lots of humor in the book, uh, and I did have some. You did? But he said you really have to amplify the humor because there are people who are going to read this. Your intended audience is the person who is facing cancer, or they are a caregiver, or they have a friend or relative who's facing cancer. Uh, they are going to be scared to death. It says, you live through this, so you don't think it's any big deal now. Uh, so for you, it's fairly easy to talk about it. But you're going to find people that pick this up, and as soon as you get into the chapters that start about the medical stuff, they're going to put it down and not pick it up again. They're going to be scared to finish it. They don't want to live through it. Uh, so there's lots of humor. It says, you've got to have the humor because it gives them a chance to, to, to step away, to relax, to say... Okay, he finished the book and he's laughing about it, so it must be okay. So I can still go back to it. But even then, they're going to be tentative. So that's why there's the humor. And it's well, very, very well done. Um, what was the medication that they gave you to treat the fungal? It was like terrible? Am amphotericin. And they call it amphoterrible? The nurses call it amphoterrible. They didn't tell me that until after we started. So that was the second time that you really felt like prayer. Yeah, like it was. People out there were It absolutely was, John. Yeah, and I so I put that on Caring Bridge. You know, the doctor said there are some patients who on sometimes <laughs> report some degree of chills that might occur perhaps an hour after the medication. You know, but okay. So, so I, you know, I had the this drip that goes in, and an hour later, I'm thinking, I'm okay. I must be the tough guy I've been telling everybody right. that I am. And suddenly, the wind came up, and I want to tell you, this is. I mean, I'm in a brick and mortar room in the middle of Kansas. This was an Arctic blast from the Wind River Canyon that came in at 160 miles an hour with ice chills in it. Um, I mean, I thought, surely there are books falling off the bookcases in the room. Surely the windows are rattling. I could not believe this. It's absolutely, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm freezing. I'm absolutely freezing. My hands were shaking so bad I could not get to the panic button to call the nurse. Um, this is terrible. Uh, they bring me warm blankets. Nurses running down the hall bringing warm blankets to me. And as I say, it was, uh, they didn't do any good. But as a futile gesture, it's a nice idea. It's something, right? <laughs> it's something, right? It's what they can do. So so this, so this, the nurses call it amphoterrible. And this lasts for about two hours until, I, I guess, as the fever breaks. And then I'm laying in bed. I'm exhausted. I'm a wreck. The, the sheets are drenched from sweat. Uh, who put all these blankets on me? Get these blankets off me. 
Uh, they got to change the sheets. I mean, it's just awful. And this goes on every night. And so the next day I'm thinking, is this going to be like this again? And I talk to the nurses and say, well, we, we do call it Ampho terrible. You what? <laughs> um, you let them put this in? <laughs> so we do this. We do this the second night. And I put this on Caring Bridge. And I say, this is really bad. And in that, I, and I'm lighthearted about it on Caring Bridge because that is what I do. But I say, Lynn and I identify all the things this is not. Uh, this is not diarrhea. This is not a heart attack. This is not an IRS judgment. Um, this is not a broken leg at a remote mountain lake. Um, there's a lot of things this is not. <laughs> so it could be a whole lot worse than oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I put that on Caring Bridge. And there are people who started praying on Caring Bridge. Uh, that's the only explanation I have for that. And I know they did. And the third night, I'm all ready. I've got the nurses queued up. I've got the warm blankets. I've got, you know, four or five blankets on me. I've got everything ready. I'm ready for the aftershock. And there is absolutely nothing that happens from this. Uh, an hour, you know, I'm, I'm dreading this. Uh, and an hour into the, the after treatment, there's nothing that's wrong. Two hours into the after treatment, I throw the blankets off. I, I have one sheet and a light blanket, and I slept the night through. Never any more chills from the amphotericin. How long did that continue past that? Do you remember? That, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a 14-day regimen oh. of treating with that stuff. Okay. And it didn't, maybe 10, maybe 14 days. It's like most antibiotics, two weeks. And they don't know. Two weeks probably do you. Uh, usually works. So, but, that, but that went on for that two weeks. And, and no more chills, no more chills at all. That's amazing. It is. It is. It's and again, was spontaneous it? remission. Yeah, of course. It's the prayers of the of saints. Yep, right. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, and I said at one point, the, you know, sin, uh, no, not sin, uh, fear entered the room and was crouching in the corner. And I thought, this will never do. I cannot live with that fear in the room because I've decided I'm going to be a tough guy, doggone it. I'm going to be the toughest guy you have ever seen in a cancer ward. And that's just a coping mechanism to deal with the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt. However, when we get to your uh, lessons learned, one of them is optimism is infectious, genuine or not. Genuine or not. Optimism is infectious. I'm going to put on the I'm going to put on the demeanor of being very optimistic about this. I'm and I'm not going to say and I never said I'm going to beat this thing because I actually don't know if I'm going to beat it or not. And even today, the flit 3, no more than we know about it, which is not very much, uh, the chances of surviving 5 years past the diagnosis are somewhere less than 15%. Uh, that's the best the medical knowledge is today. And that's why I think the oncologist is so encouraged about my case, because I've not seen any of the other normal side effects from the chemotherapy. So he's hopeful that we can prove that this new oral medication they've got me on is, is useful. I said, I'll be glad to donate my body to science. Just don't get too anxious. <laughs> so your test subject <laughs> one. <laughs> Ground zero, maybe. Then we've got encouragement, or encouragement incentivizes success. Every time I saw somebody uh, make a note on caring bridge or even send me a text or even a phone message, I was encouraged to stay in the fight. Uh, not because not because butterflies and lollipops make me feel happy, but it puts me under the gun because I've come out with this deal that I'm the toughest guy up here on this wing. By golly, take your best shot. I'm I'm, I'm going to deal with it. Whatever it is, I'm going to deal with it. And I have and I'm going to be optimistic about it. And I've got all these people following me. The posse deserves a win. They are, they are praying for me daily. I know they are. And there's a lot of comments that are made that people take great encouragement from this. And I think, I can't stop. 
I'm not going to let the posse down because because they're expecting a win out of this thing. And and I, so I better stay in the game. I'm going to buckle down to it and, and do what I can. The problem is the other option was die trying. And that was right. a very real or die trying. Right. And actually, there's no dishonor in dying trying. No. Think of think of Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Sure. Uh, William Wallace. He, yep. he dies trying. There's no dishonor in that. Uh, there's great glory in that, in fact, in the movie uh, and in Western civilization, by the way. Um, there's no dishonor in that. But but to give up, to cave, to fold up, uh, to say, this is so bad, I can't take it and just and lay down and try to die. And one hopes it comes quickly, but it probably won't. Probably won't. Um, uh, never. Not going to do that. We're going to we're going to keep plowing on through it. Uh, prayer is not our last resort, but our first. You know, there's uh, and one thing I put in here. I get tired of the the movie refrains where where all the the people gather around to watch the hero go in to to do the to slay the dragon or whatever. All we can do now is pray. And I and in the book I say, hey, you jack wagon. If you'd done that first, maybe he wouldn't be in such trouble now. <laughs> but of course, nobody would pay to see a movie like that. <laughs> yeah, I, there are some of them out there. Uh, the more you treat it like a sitcom, the easier it is. What else can possibly go wrong? Okay, so we. Blew up the spleen. And by the way, blowing up the spleen was not the worst of it. Okay. Uh, the worst of it was the next day. Uh, the blood pressure went from 80 over 40 to 60 over 30, right? When the blood pressure fails, the brain says, whoa, the blood pressure failed. It's got to keep itself alive. Otherwise, it won't know if the blood pressure failed. So it starts to shut off all the peripherals. One of the peripherals it shuts off is the kidneys. The kidneys screen out toxins in the system. And the toxins... Uh, your lifespan may be measured in minutes if the toxins are not removed. So they have to do something. The kidneys have to start working or they've got to use the dialysis machine. So they brought in a dialysis machine, which malfunctioned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something was out there for you. <laughs> and there's these two two white-coated technicians in there that are working. I don't know, it's middle of the night or what. I don't know. They're working on this thing. And this klaxon goes off. A submarine about to, to, to dive. Dive, dive. <laughs> the klaxon goes off. And I find out later from one of the doctors this is normal because this is emergency dialysis and they cannot shut off the audible alarms in emergency dialysis. When they set up the machine, it's like any software. You go through the setup. I get to this state, but nothing else is working, so you get an alarm. Right. I got to do the next one first. So the klaxon goes off, you know, and I'm trying to tell these guys, call the factory rep. There's always a factory rep. Right. But I can't make any sound come out of my throat. And I don't know, but I'm fully intubated at the time. I got this big thing down my throat. That's why I can't speak. I can't do anything. I'm trying to get their attention. My hands won't work. They're tied down to keep me from. They didn't want to hear a joke at that point. They don't want to hear any any comic relief at that point. They're they're cursing at the machine. They brought another machine. Okay, so that was was the worst of it. But when the BP quits working, that was when the the uh, the nephrologist, the kidney doctor, took Lynn out of the ICU. Lynn knew what she was going to say. That doctor and her assistant uh, went out and said, the kidneys aren't working and that does not bode well. Lynn says, that means he's going to die. And the doctor said, yes, unless something changes, we are at the end. The kidneys have to start very quickly uh, or we're completely at the end. I just want you to be prepared. And Lynn thinks, prepare how? I mean, what right. are you supposed to do? I didn't bring my black dress. What sure. am I supposed to do to prepare? But that's – and actually, I did not know that until – Actually, a couple of months after I got out of the hospital, um, I didn't realize they'd had that conversation. Um, 
but that that was as close as that came probably. Yeah, because I imagine the last thing she wants on your mind is death, <laughs> right? Yeah. So why tell you that right away? So, and so why tell you, right? When that all right. happened, the spleen was 30 days in. Right. And you were in 83, so that's not even right. halfway. That's, that's, right. We're not even halfway so yet. Obviously, yeah. there is a lot left in the book that yeah. we're, we're not going to cover. <laughs> um, but don't suffer in silence and also don't <laughs> suffer in public. That's a, a very good saying. Uh, yeah, I, I get the construction from Ben Shapiro. That's kind of the kind of thing he would say. <laughs> don't suffer in silence. And also don't suffer in public. Um, we want to know what, when, when you've got the medical problem or your kid has a medical problem or there's some big, hairy, bad issue that's out there, whether it's medical or anything else, uh, the church needs to be the church. We need to know about it. By we, I mean the brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to understand what the burden is so that we can help bear that burden. Uh, we need to come alongside. But we don't want to confuse that with knowing all the nitty gritty details of I don't want to hear the details about the diarrhea. Exactly. Right. I just I just want to know. I just want to know that there's some at the 30,000 foot level. What's going on with you? And keep me up to date with that. So I understand. So don't suffer in silence and also don't suffer in public because you actually need the help. The suffer. The don't suffer in silence is such an incredibly important thing that a lot of people are going through today. But yeah. the also don't suffer in public is would not have been an issue 20 years ago but with social right. media and all of this right. people posting every tiny little thing in their life right yeah it, it's it's certainly an issue now um and uh, yeah and I, I don't want to hear all those nitty-gritty details but because i've got a life to live right yep. but i do want to hear enough that i can remain engaged um, never let a good, well, it says never let a crisis go to waste. I know it from never let a good crisis go to waste. And real quick, you attribute it to Rahm Emanuel, which I think is correct. You say that he was later uh, mayor of Chicago, one of the few not in federal prison. <laughs> that's, that's just true, by the that way. Made yeah. me laugh. I fact checked that. Yeah. So, yeah. Actually, I think Winston Churchill first said that. Oh, was he? Yeah. And I did not put that in the book because I didn't realize that till after it went to print. Oh, but, I've always heard Rahm Emanuel. It's from, he popularized that okay. because of who he was. Yeah. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And, you know, all the conservatives, uh, politicos, they just roll around and say, well, see there, you know, they're just a bunch of shysters. And there is truth to that. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But there is there is some truth in that. So when I'm laying there in the hospital bed, I'm thinking, who do I know uh, who, one, has survived leukemia? I mean, this is actually toward the end of the stay or when I think I'm going to get out and be upright. Who do I know who has survived leukemia and who can draw lessons from this that will help others be able to meet not just cancer or leukemia or a medical problem, but really anything else uh, that attacks us that is an absolutely insurmountable problem. This is this is the diagnosis from the doctor. It is the letter from the attorney. Uh, it's the notification from the bank. Uh, it's the note left from the from from the uh, partner who is gone. Uh, it is uh, it is seeing your child go through some incredibly challenging physical or mental or spiritual uh, problem or some drug related problem. I mean, it's any kind of those that insurmountable challenge. Who do I know who can actually bring lessons to bear on this and be able to string it together in a way that is not only instructive and biblical, but is also entertaining to a read? Very fun book to read. Yeah, I I didn't expect that, to be no, honest. I mean, the not. fact that I read it on a, a, 
I started on Wichita to Denver and came darn close to finishing it on Denver to uh, Missoula. And I was getting annoyed when I realized I wasn't going to make it. Like, I'm like, oh, I want So very, very well done. Yeah, I, I want you got to keep the posse engaged. And that was my whole thought going through the Caring Bridge thing was every day it needs to be upbeat and lighthearted. Uh, it needs it needs to make them look forward to reading the daily update. And I'm sure that here at Walton's, you know, because a lot of you know people I work with, I'm sure that some of the management, they groan when this thing comes out and everybody's phone goes off. Ding. Because you're thinking, oh, good night. Another 20 minutes of wasted productivity <laughs> while we all go read the caring. Bridge That's what update. we're really concerned with. <laughs> all right. A hard trail is not the same as a closed trail. Uh, there are hard challenges that are presented to us. And that doesn't mean that we should fold up and. and and quit. And it doesn't mean that it's the wrong trail to be on. Uh, some of these things are just really hard to go through. Uh, and how does, how does that apply? When I'm going through difficulty with the spouse or the child, uh, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I just give up and say, well, forget it. I'm out of here. Uh, maybe because maybe it's just a hard trail and maybe it needs to be gone through. Uh, any Jeep trail will tell you that. There's a difference between one that's closed and one that's hard. All right. So that ties into eight in my mind. It's we don't we do not always get to choose the trials we face, only how we face them. <laughs> so there was an incident where uh, in one of the war stories, uh, my dad is a Navy chief, World War Two. Uh, I have that highlighted. We can't end without at least letting you know how much I enjoyed those stories. <laughs> there, Out of the 12 chapters, there's a war story in every chapter introduction, not in 12, but there's 12 war stories in there. Uh, five of those are from my dad, who was not in a combat role in World War II. He was an aircraft maintenance guy, and he ended up fueling Navy aircraft on Guam. Uh, he... Uh, he encountered uh, another Navy chief, I think, when he was in San Diego, ready to ship out. And this guy had a, a very deep scar down the, down the side of his head over his ear. Dad says, where'd you get this? The guy says, well, I was on a destroyer. Um, we were in, engaged in supporting the Marine invasion at Tarawa, which is one of the Pacific atolls. That was actually the first Marine beachhead of World War II. It was B-43. Um, and Dad shipped out in 44, so it would make sense. Uh, so how did you get the scar? He says, while I was there, I was on the destroyer and little known, unknown to us, when the marine landing craft went ashore, 500 yards from the shore, there's a reef that was submerged 18 inches under the water. The landing craft had a draft of three feet and they've got 40 marines on board, locked and loaded. Every landing craft got hung up on that reef and the Japanese defenders... Uh, it was an opposed landing. They had already zeroed their they had already uh, zeroed their weapons and artillery at 500 yards. They knew exactly where the reef was, so they landed artillery among the landing craft, and they had machine guns that were raking the landing craft out there. So the chief said the old man got on the horn and said, "I want a chief and a bosun's mate in each of our motor launches, which are wooden motor boats that are very large." Go in there and get those Marines off that reef and either take them to shore or bring them back here. But get them out of there. He says, so I jumped in a boat with a bosun. Um, and we and we had to go to that reef and we can float across the reef. So we're getting 40 Marines across the gunnel with packs and equipment. And we took them on into shore. And then we'd come back for another load and we'd keep doing that. 
Dad said, so where's the scar come from? And he says, someplace I took around right down the side of my head. Uh, he says, there's blood in my face. I couldn't see. I didn't know why until after we got to shore the first time. I cleaned the blood out of my head. Dad says, so where's your tin hat? He says, well, it's below decks in my quarters, of course, because what do I need a helmet for? I'm five miles offshore. I don't need one. But you think about that that lesson of of these two Marine or these two Navy guys. And the chief is probably all of a season 25 years old. Right. Right. Because. Right. And and the bosun is probably 18 or 19 years old driving the, the motorcraft. They are loading 40 Marines under fire and under artillery with packs and weapons, getting them out of a landing craft with a five foot high wall and bring them over the gunnel into a wooden motorboat. And then they drive through that fire to the beach and deliver them to the shore. And they come back for another load and they keep doing that. We do not always get to choose the trials we face, only how we face them. And I'm just in awe of that story. That is an incredible story. Yeah. I, I wonder if we're capable of things like that still today. I think we are. You read stories out of Afghanistan, Iraq, and what what warfighters have point. done there. And and there is now a lot of a lot of the American population is not, and they have no interest even in contemplating that. But there are some who are and do. And thankfully, there are some who, you know, and I think I said in there, most of us will never deliver Marines to a beach under fire. Uh, most of us do not defend with guns and bullets. Thankfully, some do right. on our behalf. Uh, I think uh, what uh, one of those guys, Orson, not Orson Wells, H.G. Uh, Wells, I think he said, no, somebody else. Uh, we sleep well in our beds at night because rough men are stand ready to do violence on our behalf. End of story. Yeah. It's a incredible book. Thank Where you. Where can people buy it? Uh, it's on Amazon, uh, amazon.com, uh, Alligator Wrestling and the Cancer Ward. Uh, it can be found there in audio, in paperback, uh, and in uh, ebook format. Uh, it can also be found on my own website, which is Alligator Publishing. Dot com. So you can order it. Uh, you can order the paperback version from alligatorpublishing.com. Uh, and my wife would be more than happy to put one in the mail to you. Uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can get shipping for free uh, with Amazon Prime if you buy from there. Uh, with us, you have to pay for shipping because it's going to cost some sure. to get it delivered. But there are a lot of people who are not Amazon Prime members, and we would welcome the business. That's where it can be done. It'll come out into other places. In the next two months, it'll be available more broadly. Uh, in Wichita, Watermark Books uh, is a part of ours and also eighth day books uh, has it available well i hope you sell a ton of copies because not only was it an interesting read but it was um somewhat inspiring to see i, I you the day i saw you in the hall my, i was split ear to ear with a <laughs> grin to see you back um so to see that you were able to get through something as many things. It was not one thing. It was so many things that tried to get you. Uh, yeah. To see you get through that and keep your sense of humor was... Stumbled from one medical disaster to another. Yeah. <laughs> oh, somebody had a plan for you. <laughs> yeah, seemed to work so far. One never knows what a day may bring forth. So we just we just keep moving, and this is where I am and who it is, and I have I, I take no credit for this, but but I'm still here. So like any of us, what do we do with what we have is, is the question. Anything else you want to talk about? I think I think that's probably good. I made up half of that anyway, so I really don't know anything else. Um. <laughs> it's all nonsense. It's not true. Kurt, thank you so much. Thanks, John. That was I appreciate excellent. It. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, John. It's Thanks. a pleasure to be with you. <laughs>
thanks for checking out the Meat Logistics Podcast. To shop everything but the meat, head on over to Waltons.com. To get your meat processing questions answered by experts and enthusiasts alike, head on over to our online community at MeatGistics.com. Waltons, everything but the meat.